We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. I was hanging on to the edge for my life, white-knuckling it. I knew if I let go, certain death would come. I could hear the sounds of laughter, of playing, and of splashing from my siblings and the neighbor friends and my cousins behind me. But I wouldn't dare turn around and look because if I did, I would fall. And I had heard the story that Oh, Chris, you learned how to swim when you were an infant, when you were a baby. We threw you in and you learned how to swim. But I didn't remember that, and I had never been in a pool since. So there my five-year-old little fingers were, hanging on to the side of the pool at our friend's apartment. And I slowly started gaining some confidence as my feet stepped out across the steps, then one foot dangling off the step, one foot on, both hands still firmly gripping, Eventually, both feet now, my legs dangling in the pool, holding on for dear life with my hands still, looking for my mom to make sure, like, I'm still safe. She didn't yell at me to stop or to go back, so I must be safe. So I kept inching out, little by little. So eventually, before I knew it, there I was in the center of the pool. Still on the side, mind you, but in the deep end of the pool, hanging on. The problem is, because of all the splashing, that ledge had gotten wet. So now the grip was harder and harder to hold on to. And I'd feel like some fingers slip, and as one hand started to slip, I would just reach up and grab again and hold on with the other hand, and I, I kept doing this. And then I heard one of my brothers yell my name. So I turn around, and as I did, one of my hands slipped off completely. So I turned back, and as I went to go grab for the other one, the second hand slipped off, and I went under. But the buoyancy of my body, I came back up again. Thank God. Hands back up on the ledge. It's too wet. They slip again. I go back under. Come back up again. I realize this isn't working. I can't grab it. And in my panic, I had actually pushed myself away from the ledge too far now. So now I couldn't grab onto anything. Plan B. When I come up for air, I'm going to yell as loud as I can for my mom. But again, in my panic, I had been opening my mouth too soon before I came above water and closing it too late as I went back down. And I came up with the gargoyle, and it wasn't loud enough. Panic is setting in even more and more all over me now. What do I do? My mom's talking to her friend. She doesn't even see me. I keep going back under. I'm coming up less often and for shorter intervals of time. Each time I go down, I'm going under. Suddenly, I'm not coming up anymore. I'm getting deeper in the pool, and I'm further away from the ledge. Nobody sees. I can still hear underwater muffled sounds of my siblings playing. Mom's nowhere around. Suddenly, I don't know if it's the infant swim lessons that started to kick in out of nowhere or if it was just an act of God, but suddenly my body just springs up and pops up out of the water, and I let out a help. 
And as I reach for the ledge, which is still too far now, a hand grabs my arm and just pulls me toward the ledge so I can grab it. Some kid I didn't even know who lived at the apartments there. I grab onto the ledge, and after I choke up a bunch of water, I'm finally able to yell for my mom. She comes and lifts me up out of the pool. And I say, Mom, I was drowning. I, I, I was drowning. I, I couldn't breathe. And she goes, ah, you're exaggerating. You were fine. Never believes me even to this day that I was drowning. You were fine. You learned how to swim when you were an infant. Now, guaranteed, if I were to go back to that same apartment complex and see this pool, it wouldn't look so scary to me anymore, right? I know how to swim. I'm much bigger than I was then. Uh, I, I'm sure it would not look like the same chaotic, watery death that I thought it was when I was five years old. We just had my sister and her kids staying with us for about three weeks. And her youngest, who was also five years old, when he first came, was so afraid of getting in the pool. And so he would have his floaty, and he was doing the same thing, just inching along the edge. And then the other day, right before they left back home to Oregon, he was no floaty, jumping off the diving board, swimming across the whole pool. It didn't seem scary anymore. Vantage points, perspectives, abilities, experience, all of this starts to change. Suddenly, things that were so scary and chaotic don't seem so scary and chaotic. What was scary and chaotic to me as a five-year-old without the experience of swimming was not so scary and chaotic to my mom, apparently. What was scary and chaotic to my five-year-old nephew seemed like not a big deal at all to me as an adult now. And Psalm 148 kind of shows us that. That there are some things in this world that are scary and chaotic and completely out of our control that we're frightened and terrified by. But for God, for God, not only does he have a perspective that he says, oh, I'm not afraid of that. For God, he created it. He made it. He spoke it. He formed it. And so not only does he not have a fear about it, but it fears him. It bends to his word, to his voice, to his control. An Olympic athletic swimmer might actually feel like they not just have control of themselves in the water, but they actually have control of the water as they push it and move it with their body to propel themselves. God literally, though, has control over it just by speaking it. That's what he did. I wonder, if we're honest with ourselves, what things right now in our life are we afraid of? Do we feel completely? out of control about? Do we feel like it's, it's just swallowing us up or we're being suffocated by it? And Psalm 148 reminds us there is a God who is over all those things. He is a God who is for us. He is a God who is watching over us. He's a God who loves us. So Psalm 148 does this. It, it moves through all of these things in creation. But it also hits a point where it starts talking about these aspects of decreation in a sense. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps. Now we've talked about this a little bit before, but in this ancient Near Eastern world, one of the most common thoughts of how the world came about, how it came to be, was that it was just all chaotic waters at one point. And 
there was this thought that there was this giant sea monster who was causing the chaotic waves moving about in it. I love, actually, that the Bible doesn't try to just go scientifically, go, hey, no, 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 that's not what happened. I love that its approach is, even if that's how it happened, we know the God is over it. That's the approach. Kind of like, Jessica, you were talking about with your sibling. You know, the scientific mind, these scientific reasonings, your studies, all that's fine. That's actually not in contradiction with the God who made it all. So maybe there was this giant sea creature (laughs) with watery depths and chaotic waters. That's fine, Egyptians. Have that thought. But you know how you believe there was some kind of God who came and defeated that giant sea creature and brought stillness and calmness to the waters? That's our God. That's Yahweh. Even the the decreation kind of moment or the pre-creation kind of moment I say decreation because what came and enveloped the whole earth later? After God had separated the waters, he made space for life to happen, for dry ground, for vegetation to sprout up, for animals and humans to walk about. After all that, what kind of waters came crashing back again? Remember the story of Noah? The flood? This kind of decreation moment. And then God, once again, parting it making way for life. And Noah and his family start fresh to re-engage with his partnership with humanity as seeing flourishing happen throughout the whole world. Psalm 148 is reminding us that thing that is so terrifying that could just envelop us at any moment, God's in control of it. There's some giant sea monster that you're afraid of God is the one who conquered it. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling what? His word, right? For some reason, God decided to shut all that up last weekend when we were camping. There's no rain. It was dry. It was hot. I mean, at least here, May, may have been 15 degrees hotter, but we can go inside an air-conditioned building there. We went into a stuffy tent. It was hot. God, God chose that for some reason, right? We got our vitamin D in. But we come back, and suddenly it's raining all over Flagstaff. And even here, it's been raining this week, and I love the rain. Maybe it's because I'm a native Phoenician. I've lived here my whole life, and every summer I go, God, are you sure? You still want me here? Hawaii might need a church plant. I don't know, but nope, he keeps me here. And so when the rain comes, when monsoon season comes, I love it. So one morning I was sitting up early and I was sitting on our couch in the living room, looking out the window, just watching some of the rain come down. And there was some lightning, a little bit of light thunder. And then suddenly, boom, this loud crack of thunder that literally felt like it shook our whole house. My sister woke her up. She came out to see what was going on. Our dog, Millie, comes running out first, actually. So when my sister came out, she's like, I just stepped in something wet. And I was like, yeah, Millie probably peed because she got afraid of that thunder. Later, it looks actually now like it's in the same spot where our AC might be dripping. But it's a much better story if it's dog urine. So we'll go with that. But that, that was a scary thing. It's a big, huge thing that we have no control over. That could be 
chaotic and dangerous. Except what? It follows and obeys the voice of our Creator. The one who put the stars in the sky, the planets, the sun, the moon, who orbited this earth and caused life to grow on it. It all answers to him. What's the thing going on in your life right now that feels chaotic, that you need God to show up? You need that thing to answer to you, God. I just want to encourage us. We actually have access to go to him and talk to him about that. We have access to go to him and be like, God, this is crazy and I don't know what to do. I'm out of control. We don't like to admit that to ourselves even, do we? That we don't have control over something. But the reality is we have no control over most things in our lives and in this You can go to the one who made it, the one who it answers to, and you can say, God, I need to see you at work in this. We're reminded of that just even in the the order that Psalm 148 says all these things. It begins with starting up in the heavens, that all the angels, the spiritual beings in heavens, and the heavenly hosts, that is warriors, armies. Hey, this God. Your translation might start with the word hallelujah. It says praise the Lord because hallelujah is actually just the English letters through a Hebrew word. Hallelujah means hallel is praise. Yah. Hallelujah. Praise God, Yahweh. It's a command, actually. It's not actually just like a be praising in the moment, like spontaneously. It's a command. It's saying, hey, everybody, praise the Lord. Because this is who he is. He's above all these things. The warrior angels in the heavens, they answer to him. And then it moves through the same pattern that you find in Genesis 1. The story of the heavens, and it moves to uh, the skies, the land. It moves to the waters that he parted, it moves to the mountains and the hills, the fruit trees. This is all in the same order that you see creation take place in the first six days of Genesis 1. The things that, the beasts of all livestock, verse 10, creeping things, flying birds, and then finally God's crowning sheep. This special, unique creature that he puts there to represent him to the rest of creation and to care for it have dominion over it. Humans. Verse 11, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. When the Bible does things like this, when it takes two extremes, like young and old, grandparents and children, what it's doing is it's saying, and everybody in between. This is spanning the whole breadth God created all human beings in his image to be his representatives, his caretakers, for his good pleasure. And there's a command given to all of us. Praise the Lord. That's a command. It's an invitation, too. Because you find life, goodness, and fullness, and all your satisfaction and joy and contentment met there you obey that command. But make no mistake, it is a command given to all of creation. 
praise to the Lord. Give praise to him. He's the only one worthy of it. He's the only one who could command the fire and the hail and the watery depths and the chaotic sea monsters. Give praise to him. He's the only one who could command the chaotic sea going on in your heart right now. He's the only one who has total control over what's going on even with your finances and your relationships at home and what's going on at work and how your kids won't listen to you, how your spouse doesn't hear you. He is the only one who has control over all the chaotic watery seas in the world. Give praise to the Lord. Go to him with those fears. Go to him with that chaos. Go to him with that concern. God, I don't know what to do right now. I need you to show me. I can guarantee, I know this is true of my life, we see it true throughout history of the world, can guarantee when things go wrong in this world, because there's a human behind it, he thinks, I got this. I got control of this. Hold my drink, I got this. Right? We think we have control. We try to convince ourselves we have control. We try to convince others we have control. And we create all kinds of messes in that process. Because we don't understand it. Because we are the helpless child who can't grab a hold of the ledge in a swimming pool. But God is the one who can go reach his hand down and get us out. The number one way we can partner with God is by simply going to him and saying, I can't control the chaos in my life. Please lead me. Psalm 148 then does this weird little turn at the end here commanding all things to praise, and then I want to pick up in verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. That sounds weird to us. We don't have context for that in our modern world here. Uh, I don't know, like, when I invite people over, I don't like, hey, let me raise up a horn for Patrick. He's here. He made it. I don't have a horn in my house at all. So that's weird. What, what is that talking about, right? Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. That's how the psalmist says it. Uh, it. So in this ancient world, what a horn was a symbol of is victory in battle. And so what it should do is it, it kind of paints this picture, this image to us of let's take, for example, two rams that are battling against each other. Two male rams that are going at it, and what do they do? They lock horns. And when one ends up being victorious, what they do is they end up lifting up the horn on their head and, like, strutting around with their chest out. So this symbol became something for humans. They would lift up a horn as a shout of victory in battle. They actually would take ram's horns, and they would hollow them up. They would use them to shout through. They would blow through the ram's horn, and now it's like an instrument. But it was an instrument of battle, an instrument of victory. So at the end of a battle, if they won, they would have someone blowing the shofar, which is what they called for the ram's horn. This is also what God had Israel do, if you remember in the story of Joshua, as they were going into Jericho. So God had promised his people, I have a land for you, I have a place, I am giving you a home. You pass through the watery chaotic depths of the Red Sea safely because God is with you. 
now he's bringing you into the safety of a land with milk and honey, vegetation, all kinds of life. He made way for life in the midst of the chaos of your world. But they found an enemy there. And they were afraid. There's more, there's more chaos in the soul now all of a sudden. God, what do we do about this? And so God says, I will fight your battle for you. He has them walk around the walls seven times. Now, I don't know about you guys. I've never heard of that being a tactic in warfare. You just go march around your enemy seven times. And then you win, right? He had them march around, and that last time, blow through those ram's horns, the shofar. They would blow as loud as they could, because victory was theirs. What did they do? All they did was be obedient. Listen to God. Yell out praise to him through those horns. And God had victory. So this symbol we have here, this is also a reminder to the people of Israel as they would hear this psalm, as they would repeat it over and over again. What has God done? Verse 14, he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. What has God done? He has brought victory. He has brought safety. He has brought rescue. I don't think I have this on the slide, but I want to turn real quick to Luke 1. This language of God raising up a horn for his people of victory, rescue, of safety, this stuck with God's people. They knew that they had gotten themselves into trouble time and time again by saying, I got this. They, they demanded that they get a human king because if we have a human king, we'll be like the other nations and they'll be able to lead us well. And every time they thought, I got this, every time the king thought, I got this, they got themselves into a deeper and deeper like me in that pool. I'm trying to grab the ledge for myself, and I actually kept pushing myself further away from it. So they reminded themselves, God raises up a horn for us. He's the one who brings us victory. And so in Luke 1, there's a man named Zechariah. He's an old man. His wife's old, and God promises, hey, I'm going to give you a son. And they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> and so since he doesn't believe, God quiets his mouth. Hey, you don't get to talk anymore. You don't get to talk against me right now. You just sit there quietly and wait and watch for what I'm going to do. Right? So he makes him mute for nine months. Nine months, this little baby, his name would be called John, is growing inside of his wife Elizabeth's belly. In nine months, he can't speak. And then the child is born, and they're like, hey, what should we name him? And he knows that when, when this angel messenger came and visited him for the Lord and said, call his name John. But everyone around is like, hey, it's customary, firstborn, we're going to name him after someone in the family, let's call him Zechariah. He's going to be little Zechariah Jr., right? He's like, no. On his little writing tablet, he writes his name is John, and suddenly God says, okay, you're obedient. You had no control. No control. Like, imagine how out of control you would be. You've been able to speak your whole life, and suddenly it just stops. Like, that would feel chaotic, right? And you can't just will yourself, your voice to come out. But when he gave praise to the Lord, when he became obedient to the Lord, suddenly God brings that back into his gift. And this is what he does. He starts praising. So he couldn't talk for nine months. Imagine all the words that have been pent up. Right? He's just ready to go now. I would imagine if I were in his shoes, like after maybe 
day one, week one, month one, the words that would have come out of my mouth would have been like, God, what in the world are you doing? Like they would have been angry. They would have been confused. After nine months, and then God does this. This is what his words are. This is in Luke 1, verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, verse 69, and has raised up a what? Horn of salvation for us. This is what God has done. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Right now, in this moment, as Zechariah is saying this, they are oppressed people being beaten up and beaten down by the Roman Empire. He can say, God has raised up a horn of salvation, victory, rescue, safety, because of God, even in the midst of this oppression. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit just filled him and revealed to him something that was about to take place. And it wasn't through his son John, because if we keep reading, if we go all the way to the end, he says this in verse 76, and you, child, talking to a son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, not the Most High, but a prophet of. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What the Spirit revealed to him is your son is going to play a part, partnering with me. But he's not the one in control. Partnering with me, what he's going to do is praise the Lord, and he's going to tell others to praise the Lord, and he's going to say, get ready, the Lord is coming, rescue is coming, the horn of salvation is about to be blown. So he says, you raised up a horn of salvation for us, verse 69, in the house of his servant David. All of the Old Testament overview we've been doing has been pointing us to this, that through this line of David, the first king of Israel, God promised a better king wanted your human king to say, I got this. God says, I'm your king. I've got this. So God shows up in the form of a human. Born right after this guy, John, is to another couple that shouldn't have had a child. God's in control. God does what he will with his creation. And God brings, through partnership with humanity, rescue true king who can have control over all things. That Jesus, when he's on the boat with his friends and there's a storm and they're freaking out because of the watery chaos, he simply says, hush, the wind and the waves. What do they do? They obey him. Right? Isn't that what Psalm 148 told us? Why? Because verse 8, they fulfill We have a lot of chaos going on in our world, don't we? I mean, we know the national chaos, the the global chaos that is happening in our world. We're all very familiar with that. But there's also all the little chaos that's going on in each of your individual lives. The stuff going on in your head that you won't even tell other people. The things taking place in your heart, and it feels out of control and chaotic. But I want to share, like, at the most chaotic point in history, 
When this horn of salvation, the rescuing king who actually had control over all things, who commanded the wind and the waves to be still, and they did it, when he's hanging on a cross. And it seems like death has won. The chaotic, watery depths of the grave had victory. Most chaotic moment in human history, in global history. And yet God executing his plan that he had had all along. He had final say. Fulfilling and obeying his word, Jesus rises up out of the grave. The Holy Spirit that filled Zechariah to speak what he spoke, that same Holy Spirit revives the lungs of this Jesus. And he walks out of that tomb in the body, in the flesh, in the midst of the most chaotic thing ever, the thing you and I have no control. We're all guaranteed to die. And God takes full control over it. Full victory. He raises up a horn of salvation and a victory over death itself. Amen, right? That's good news. That's the good news that we are sent with. That we were talking about. This is, this is why we reclaim that word evangelical. Because we get to take this good news now. We get to share that with the world around us. Praise the Lord. That's a command. We hear this good news, and now we're commanded to go and take it and praise the Lord to the world around us so they will hear this good news too. And we go with that same message. Praise the Lord. I was dead. Now I'm alive. You will certainly die, but you can be alive in Christ Jesus. Pray with me that we would be a people who share that good news.